really excited to continue this series with you guys. Uh, like Josh said, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that out. Um, if not, there's a Bible underneath your seat. Um, and if you grab that blue Bible, it's page uh, 1,103. 1,103. And so, yeah, I am minister of students here, so you may hear some kooky things, kooky stories from me now and then, because uh, that's my life, is I get to hang out with teenagers, and they do some funny and weird things, but I love it. I absolutely love it. So here's what I want to do is I just want to dive in and get going this morning. Here at Flourishing Grace, we know and believe that the word of God, that the Bible is God's word for us, living and active and breathing, and he is speaking to us through it. And so uh, just in reverence to that, if you can, would you, would you stand as we just read um, this passage this morning? Starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, that apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were uh, to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat take a seat. So, over the last couple of weeks, um, we have seen that the writer of Hebrews is kind of building a case for Jesus, that Jesus is better and greater than anything or anyone else. We've seen this again and again and again, and we'll continue to see it as we walk through the book of Hebrews, um, that he continues to make this case over and over again, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better than anything else that you could give your life to, and anyone else that you could give your life to. We have to ask the question, why is he doing this? And we've kind of said this before, but I want to remind us of where we're at and who the writer of Hebrews is talking to here. The writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians in Rome, but these Christians all uh, grew up in Jewish homes, right? They're all uh, from their bloodlines, from their culture. They are culturally Jewish. They're the Israelites, right? And so with that comes a lot. But they've believed in Jesus, meaning that they have said Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. Jesus is the one that was promised throughout hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds, and thousands of years that the the promised one who will come and rescue us, turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that one is the one, Jesus. So they've believed that fully. So they've turned and said that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law. My family has, has grown in. He's fulfilled that, and he is the promised Messiah. But in Rome, these Christians at the same time are starting to be persecuted, 
right? And we're going to see, well, if you look in church history, you'll see that they really get persecuted badly. It hasn't really happened that bad yet, but they're starting to. And they're really starting to be uh, kind of... Um, kind of be pushed back into their old ways. That kind of uh, pushed back into the idea of, man, maybe I should, yes, I believe in Jesus, but maybe I should also stick with what I grew up with. And the writer of Hebrews is going to continually say, no, 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 no. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that your ancestors believed. He is greater than that. And the reason why, one of the reasons why the writer of Hebrews continues to beat this drum over and over again is because of their family history, right? If you look back, if you've read through the Old Testament, you see that Israel had just over and over again, the major, one of the major themes of the Old Testament is that they continued to, they were God's chosen people and they were with God. And then what do they do? They choose something less than God to elevate to God's status, Something less than God. They choose that and they say, no, 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 this is our God now. This idea or this thing or whatever, that this thing is our God. And then what happens? We see, boom, destruction and just so much bad stuff happening. And then God rescues them. And they kind of go back to God for a little bit. They're like, yes, God, Yahweh, he's, yes, he is God. He's the one true God. And then what happens again? They, they give themselves to lesser things in the world. And over and over and over again, I remember... When I first got here, in our student ministry on Sunday mornings, we were going through the uh, Gospel Project, which is like a three-year kind of going through. The kids' ministry still does this three years through the Bible and kind of go through it every three years. And we were in the Old Testament, like right in the middle of it when I got here. And I remember one of my students was like, Josh, it feels like we're reading the same thing. Like every week. Like, can they not learn from their mistakes? And I'm like, exactly. Like, that is exactly what we see in the Old Testament is that again and again and again, when humans are left to their own devices, we choose the lesser things. We choose the lesser things over not just a better thing, but the greatest thing for us, God himself. And so as I was kind of reading and getting prepared for this this last month, I, uh, I really like the show The Office. Does anybody else here like that show? Okay, cool. A little more than last uh, week, but if you don't like The Office, please don't put some sort of judgment on me, okay? It's a thing, but anyway, in The Office, I was watching this episode, and, and there's this character named Dwight, um, and you might even know who Dwight is, even if you don't watch the show, but he's weird, he's a beet farmer, um, with like on a side gig, or it's like he inherited it from his family, anyway, um, and, but he works at this office, and uh, this woman brings in a baby, and he's kind of testing the baby to see its intelligence and kind of some other things, and so he, he puts the baby in, in his office, and he, and he holds up a $1 million check in his left hand. In his right hand, he holds a beat. And I'm talking about, like, a, like, he, like, literally just picked it from his farm on his way in. Beat, like, it's got mud and stuff all over it. I mean, it's not like a beat you'd buy at the store, which even still, I don't think that would be any better. But he kind of stands there in front of the baby, and he says, choose one. Which one? You get to pick one. Which one would you pick? Now, raise your hand if you would pick the beat over the million-dollar check. Anybody? Yeah, I knew Bethany was going to pick that. It's okay. So, <laughs> but, but in reality, let's be real. Someone also raised their hand last, last time. I was like, come on, guys. You got to go with me. But in reality, like, we're not going to pick the beat. In the show, the baby picks the beat. 
Well, why? Because the beat is like colorful, right? It's got stuff hanging off of it, which for a baby is like, ooh, this looks amazing to play with, and, right? Um, and the check is just what? A piece of paper with some writing on it. And the baby's sitting there going, I don't care about that. I want the thing that's like purple and green and got stuff on it. I can play with it, right? Um, and so, but in reality, we all would not choose the beats because why? You know what the million dollar check represents. It represents that you can take that check, and as long as that person who gave it to you has a million dollars, right? You can go to the bank, you can put that money in your account, you can see it in your account, you can pull out one dollar, you can go to a beet farmer or the store, I don't know, wherever you get beets, and you can buy yourself a beet for a dollar and still have $999,999, right? And so the check is of infinitely more value than the beet. But the thing is that the writer of Hebrews is saying here, and what we're going to spend time talking about this morning, is that we constantly, over and over again, to this day, and the Israelites did it too, choose lesser things. We choose, I mean, things that are so much less, it's not even funny. And so, this morning, here's my call to you. I want to put just everything out there and say this. Look, my, my call is no different than what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. My call to you this morning is to just simply consider Jesus. And when I say consider Jesus, I mean look at who he is. Look at what he has actually done. Because when we consider Jesus... We think on him and actually with our hearts consider who he is and what he is saying to us. We can see that he is far greater than anything else that we could give ourselves to. And so the writer of Hebrews starts kind of this process of telling them, look at Jesus because he is greater than everything else. And the kind of the first thing he points out is that of this giant in the Israelite faith, Moses. That look, Moses was amazing, but he is less, he's the lesser thing when you compare him to Jesus. And to the Israelites, we have to understand it's hard because we're in this 21st century context and then we're thinking about you know, the Israelites and their culture. And so what I wanna do is I kinda wanna build up Moses a little bit so we understand um, Whereas if you haven't, uh, if you don't know who Moses is or, or, or haven't read about what he's done, but Moses was kind of this guy who, or he was this guy who is larger than life. He did things that like we write movies about that are like fake. You know, like Marvel movies, like no one does any of that stuff. But we look at it and we're like, oh man, those are our heroes. Those are like these people that are larger than life that are amazing. But in reality, there's nobody that we can connect back to that's actually done those things. But Moses was this huge, gigantic hero who did amazing things for God and for his people. The writer of Hebrews here in verse 5 says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the, thing, to the things that were to be spoken later. He doesn't push Moses down here. He doesn't say, nah, Moses, he, he wasn't that good. No, he, he brings him up and he says, no, no, no. He was a faithful servant in all of God's house. He was faithful. If not one of, if not the most, if one of the most 
to God in his entire life. And here, I just want to kind of go through his rap sheet. All of these, you can read, uh, you can read in the book of Exodus. Man, spend some time this week just going through and seeing who Moses was and how he constantly points to someone who's greater um, in, uh, in the book of Exodus. But I'll give you just, and these are just a couple things. When I say there are a couple things, like we're probably not even talking about close to half of what Moses did. So even just starting when he was an adult, like an older adult, Moses listened to God through a burning bush. There's a bush that's, being cons- or that's burning, but it's not being consumed, and God is speaking to him. And Moses stands before the bush, and God is saying, I am God, and this, I want you to let, let, like rescue my people from Israel. I mean, from uh, Egypt. Rescue my people Israel from Egypt. And Moses says, okay. And he goes. Then he goes toe-to-toe with one of the most powerful men of the time, the pharaoh of Egypt, right? Pharaoh, he is the most powerful man, and he doesn't just, like, go and, like, ask, hey, God says, like, you should let his people go, so will you let them go? No, he stands before him and says, God says, let his people go, so let them go. And even when Pharaoh says, nope, not going to happen, Moses continues to come back, when in reality is, Pharaoh could just snap, and Moses is dead, right? Somebody comes across, and he's done. But Moses continues to be faithful to what God has told him. Not only that, but then Moses is the messenger of like all these insane plagues. These crazy plagues that God is using to show Pharaoh he means business. And that he is real. And that he wants Pharaoh to let his people go. Moses continues to come back and announce those plagues. Then he actually leads Israel, millions of people, physically out of slavery, out of Egypt. Then he parts the Red Sea. Like, there's a sea that's before them, and they have to get across it. Egypt is, or before the pharaohs decided, you know what, never mind, I want, I want these slaves back. We're going to go get them. And Moses parts the Red Sea, and they go across, and then as Egypt is coming through, demolishes the army, saves the people of God. And then, even still, Moses fights constantly for the people of God. He leads a stubborn people through the wilderness, even as they continue to not trust God, and then trust, and then not trust, and then trust. But one of the biggest things, what, Israel, what the Israelites would attach to Moses, is that Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and talked with God. And he came down with the law, right? We know, like, we think of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments coming down. But he stood before God, and God said, I tell my people that they are my people, and I am their God. And so I'm giving them a way of life, a way to live, a way that's going to protect them, but also a way that's going to show the world what I have designed humanity to be like what I've designed the image bearers of God to be like so that they would come to me. And he goes down and he was so close to God that he was glowing, like physically glowing, so much so that Israel was so scared that they put a veil over him because they were scared of the holiness of God that was just literally had bounced off of Moses and Moses is just radiating it. 
And so Moses is huge. And what he brought, the covenant before God, this relationship that the people of Israel had with God, he brought. And so they elevated him so high in this. They elevated the law so high. But here's the problem. Is Israel kind of elevated these things too high? They turned Moses into a savior. When he did physically save people, but he wasn't the promised Messiah. He wasn't the end of what God was doing. And the law that he brought was not the end, was not meant to be the end. The law that God brought through Moses was meant to point forward. It is and was the lesser thing. The greater thing was God himself. And so we see this. We see this that the writer of Hebrews points this out clearly. In verse 5 again, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. The point of what Moses was doing was to point to things that would be spoken later. Meaning they were all supposed to point directly to Jesus and what Jesus would do on the cross. That Jesus would fulfill the Old Testament law, that he would, because he's God, he would come in and he would fulfill it. Galatians, and uh, Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we, no longer, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus are all, sorry, for in Christ Jesus, uh, you are all sons of God through faith. Again, the law was this guardian, this protector, but also this kind of thing that would say, look, like you cannot do all these things. Like the law was there to say, look, this is like what it means to be perfect, and you can't do it. Like it's not possible. You need outside intervention. You need God himself to do a work in you. You cannot turn your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You, uh, God, must do it within you. So it's all to point to what Jesus will do. And then 2 Corinthians 3, it'll be up on the screen as well, uh, Paul says this, now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, basically the Old Testament law, this covenant that they had with God, Israel had with God, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The argument here for Paul and for the writer of Hebrews is that, that, Moses, uh, that Moses was faithful and the law had a purpose. It had a purpose of bringing his people together and showing the world who God was, but it was not the end. 
and that the whole purpose of the law and of Moses and his life was to point to the coming Messiah, to the one who could complete and fulfill everything. And really the only one that could do that. The only one that can save us. And so here, the writer of Hebrews simply puts over and over again as we've gone through, but it's continuing in chapter three, that person is Jesus. The person who we can put our trust in, the person that is the greater one that we should give ourselves to, that we is, he is worth consideration of because of who he is and what he has done. He is worth considering giving ourselves fully to and trusting fully in what he said and what he did. And so here's what I want to do is I just want to go through that. I want to go through, the, the writer of Hebrews here just points out who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how that shows us that he is the greater thing. He's the greatest one. So starting with just who he is, who Jesus is. If you look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, honor, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The writer of Hebrews here is pointing out clearly that Moses was just built by God, right? He has been not only created by God, he's man created by God, right? But that Jesus was not created. Jesus was not created by anyone. He is God. Jesus is fully God in control of all things. And he has power and authority over the house because he himself designed it. Think about verses like John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John makes this case at the beginning that Jesus is fully in himself God. And then Jesus comes down and, and becomes like us to finish, to fulfill the work, the law. We'll get into that in a second. But Jesus is the builder of the house. He is God himself. And the reality is, no one can say that about themselves. You can't say that about yourself. I can't say that about myself. You can't say that about your boss or your best friend or any religious leader. We are not the builders of the house. We are simply the house, the bricks. It also says this in five, uh, verse 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So Jesus is the creator of the house, but he's also the son over the house. And here he, he talks about, again, how Moses is this servant, and the word that's used here in the Greek is kind of uh, a word for like higher level servant. Um, like, a, like basically servant over all servants, right? You can think of like Alfred in Batman, right? Anybody? Okay. Again, I'm the student minister. Bear with me. 
But I think of that, like, instantly when I thought of that, I was like, man, it's Alfred, right? Alfred runs, if anybody, sorry, this might go into nerdum, it's fine, but Alfred runs the house, he runs all the servants, he runs everything for Bruce Wayne, but who ends up owning everything? Bruce Wayne. He can do whatever he wants with what he has because it's his. He is, it's his. He owns it. He is the son of, He's the heir to everything, to all the estates. Um, and this is the same comparison here. Moses was amazing. But in the end, he was just the highest servant of all servants. And Jesus is the son, the son of God who owns everything. But then the writer of Hebrews also goes into what Jesus has done. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, there's a lot there, and I want to unpack it really quickly. Um, But he calls Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And in that, he's showing who Jesus is. So, a couple weeks ago, Josh Knight talked about how apostles were the ones that were directly sent by Jesus, right? And biblically, when we see through the Bible, there's no other apostles besides the ones that are directly sent by Jesus. And not many times in the New Testament is Jesus referred to as an apostle. But here, the word apostle simply means sent one. And he's sent from the Father. That, that God, Jesus, uh, is sent by God the Father to live, to humble himself, to live like us, to walk on earth with us, to be tempted by the things that we were tempted by, but not to sin because he is God. He was sent. And then in that, we see that he is our high priest. And we're gonna get into this in a couple weeks, so I don't wanna step on the toes of that. It's a whole sermon in itself. That's why we're doing that. But the high priest, Jesus becomes our high perfect high priest because he mediates for God's people and not only that but he um, uh, makes sacrifice for God's people a perfect sacrifice in the Old Testament the high priest was the one that would go into kind of the holy of holies like this place where God's presence dwelled and he could only go in there and it was a certain time of year and he would sacrifice for the people of Israel, but they'd have to do it over and over again. They'd sacrifice animals, like, for that purpose, and they'd have to do it over and over again because animal blood does not, um, does not cleanse human sin and disobedience towards God fully. It's not the same. But Jesus comes down, lives a life that you and I could not live, and then dies the death that we deserve on the cross. Jesus himself becomes our high priest, our mediator between us and God because we can't get to God because he's holy and perfect and we are not. But he also becomes the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice in our place, takes our place, takes our wrath. And this is kind of the confession that he's saying here in Hebrews. That our confession, what he's saying by that is it's the gospel Our confession is that Jesus is Lord and what Jesus said he did and what he did, he actually did. 
It's saying things like that. Our confession is Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, that Jesus actually brings eternal life. Jesus brings eternal life. Moses, yes, he brought people out of slavery, physical slavery, but Jesus brings us out of slavery to sin and death itself. And he's greater. It's a no-brainer. He's greater. 1 Timothy 2 says, uh, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus, or the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, this is our confession. This is what we're saying that Jesus is. If he is greater, this is what he is, that he is the one mediator between God. He gave himself as a ransom for us. Moses went up on Mount Sinai, spoke with God, and the glory of God was shown on him, and he even came down and showed this is how the people of God live. But Jesus comes down, humbles himself, becomes like us, tempted again in every way that we are tempted, and does not sin, and then dies in our place. And it's saying things like this. Jesus says in John 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is our confession. That Christ has done all of the work that we cannot do. This is what it means to say that Jesus is greater than everything else. That nothing else can take the place of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. There's nothing else that I can insert into that that will, that will save me from my sin, that will bring me salvation, that will bring me hope or purpose or joy. Nothing, nothing else. Nothing else has the ability to do that. But Christ alone has done that. So the writer of Hebrews in verse six says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What he's saying is, man, we are God's house when we hold fast. We are choosing the greater thing when we hold fast to what Jesus has done, boasting in our hope, not hope in ourselves, not that we can one day maybe achieve something that God would accept us, but that God has already done the work. He looked at me. He looked at me in my sin, and he ident- I am an enemy of God, and yet Jesus dies for me to make me his son, to make you a son or daughter to find security, to find hope, to boast in what Jesus has done, not in what we could do or what anything else could do for us. The great, uh, they call him the Prince of Preachers, one of my favorite uh, pastors of all time. And again, this wouldn't be a Flourishing Grace sermon if we didn't quote at least either Bonhoeffer's Virgin. So if you're here, you know. Um, And I actually just stumbled upon this quote, wasn't like looking for it. And I was like, man, this is, 
so good and it's so with what we're talking about here. He says this, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And in it, it was kind of like, actually, this is, I saw it in like a, someone had drawn, kind of written it and drawn stuff. And on it, the drawing was a person running on like a hamster wheel. And, and but that's a perfect picture of it. Like when you trust in yourself and your self-righteousness, you, you're not going anywhere. Or when you trust in anything less than Jesus, if your faith does not begin and end with Jesus Christ, then it's a lesser thing and you're running on a wheel. You're running on a hamster wheel. And so, and so this morning, again, I want to remind you back at the beginning of what the writer of Hebrews says. He says to consider Jesus, to actually consider who he is, to actually line him up with other things in your life. And so for some of you, maybe you lived your entire life trying to do the right thing trying to be accepted by God. If I go to church enough or if I do the right things or if I serve people, if I give enough money or I do, the, I do, I do, I do, all these things, I give myself sacrificially in all these ways, then God will accept me. That is a lesser thing. Not only is it a lesser thing, but it's a lesser thing that will lead you to death. It looks really good, just like the baby thought the beat looked amazing. But it ends up leading you to destruction. So my call to you is to stop. Stop running on the wheel. And actually consider Jesus. Consider who he is. Actually spend time seeing what Jesus did and what he has done. Don't just take my word for it. Go and actually take one of these Bibles if you don't have one and go and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and actually see what Jesus said and what he did and who he was. And you'll see that he is greater than anything else you could give yourself to. And then trust in him. Rest in him. Rest in the fact that he has done the work for you and that when you believe in him that God looks at you as a son or daughter. He looks at you with love and hope and joy because of what Jesus has done, if you believe in him. For some of you, you've tried to find hope or purpose in yourself, or maybe your job, or just the things of the world, money, stuff, house, if I get the right house, if I have the right stuff, if I have the right status, or, or maybe it's even like, if I get to a life in which I don't suffer anymore, there's no suffering in my life, then that's it, like that's my salvation. And even that, that is a lesser thing. A lesser thing that also leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to the fullness of joy that's found in Jesus. So turn, consider Jesus. Consider what Jesus has done and who he is. and Find everything in him. And finally, for some of you, some of you know Jesus. You, you trust Jesus what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You've, you've known Jesus longer than I've been alive, maybe. <laughs> he is the apostle and the high priest of your confession. You are 
a brick in the house built by God. But maybe this morning you're just not seeing or feeling God's presence, or maybe you haven't for a while. Maybe there's sin that's crept into your life that you're finding joy and purpose and hope in. My call to you is the same. Consider Jesus, but you consider Jesus as that apostle and high priest of your confession, of the one who has saved you, the one who has already done the work for you, who has died for you, who calls you his son or daughter, who cares and loves deeply for you. And then turn and repent, knowing that God loves you, that you are, you have been saved, you've been brought into the family of God, that you haven't been cast out, that you need to turn and repent of things and stop trusting in lesser things than Christ in your life. So that's my hope for you, is that no matter where you're at, that you would just simply consider Jesus. Consider what Jesus has done. Consider who he is and know that he is greater than anything or anyone else. Let me pray for us to that end. God, you are greater. God, so much greater than anything else we could give ourselves to. God, just like the Israelites, we constantly give ourselves to things aren't even playing the same game as you. Like, they're, they're so low. We constantly choose the beat. God, I pray that you would work within us to see by your spirit, we would actually see who Jesus is. God, you do this work. I pray that you would just reveal within us who Jesus is. I pray for some, it might even be for the first time that they would see who Jesus actually is. Maybe they've heard the name of Jesus their entire lives, but to know him as their apostle, as their high priest, as the one who has done it all for them. And then for some, I just pray that they would see Jesus. They would see and be reminded of Jesus on the cross. And as Jesus was on the cross, he knew their name. And even he knew the sin that they would commit after they trusted in him. And yet he still died for them. That's the love that he has. He still died to cleanse them. Pray that they would turn and repent and trust. Help us to consider Jesus. In his name we pray.